Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. And I'm Rich Verma. Each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business and thought leaders driving the Indo-Pacific from New Delhi to Tokyo. Thanks, Rich. Uh, Today, we have a very special guest, Samantha Vinograd, joining us in our studio. Uh, You may know her from her many and frequent appearances on CNN, her weekly briefing series on the biggest foreign policy and security challenges facing the nation, or her powerful uh, Twitter presence. Um, Rich and I worked with her when she was in government at the National Security Council, but today we're going to ask her about how she got her start in foreign policy and hear her perspectives on the most pressing issues affecting the Asia Pacific and the world. Yeah, so Kurt, before we start, let me just give you a little rundown of Sam's impressive career. Uh, After graduating with a master's in security studies from Georgetown, Sam went to Iraq, where she served as the U.S. Treasury Department's deputy attache in Baghdad. After a year in Baghdad and then a short stint in the UAE, she returned to D.C., where she eventually became a director on the National Security Council staff in 2009, holding numerous positions over four years, including as director for Iraq, director for international economics, and senior advisor to Tom Donilon, the president's national security advisor and also a former Tea Leaves guest. As you said, Kurt, she's now built a robust career in the private sector and continues to provide her insights on CNN and other uh, platforms. Sam, it's terrific that you're here today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I want to start early in your career, actually before you even came to Washington, and maybe you can give us a sense of how you even got an interest in, in foreign affairs. I know uh, your family story is is a big part of it, and your dad's been a big role model for you. Could you give us some insights about that? Thanks for asking about my dad, because he has really personally and professionally shaped everything that I do. And the word that I would use to describe my childhood is simple one. It's curiosity. My dad mm-hmm. is now a 90-year-old Holocaust survivor, mm-hmm. and because of his age, we didn't really connect on traditional things. He wasn't, it wasn't soccer games and t-ball. It was more finding things that I didn't know about that maybe he did, researching them together and trying to learn about the world. And because of that relationship with my father, I was constantly learning. And this was well before the days of Google. This was in the days of, you know, Dewey Decimal Systems and libraries and all of those. Encyclopedia uh, Britannica. Encyclopedia Britannica and the early days of Wikipedia and just a little kid trying to figure out what she didn't know. And that really accompanied me to college and everybody, you know, starts studying something for a reason. Mine was just as simple as I didn't understand something. I was a freshman in college when 9-11 happened. It was actually freshman orientation, had been out way too late the night before, woke up to see the planes actually hitting the Twin Towers, and I didn't know what was going on, and that bothered me. And I made a simple decision that's really shaped my entire career, which was to start studying Arabic. And on that day, I said, okay, don't really understand what's going on in the Middle East. A good place to start is the languages. And from there, I just was so in love with the region and the complexities that I became a Middle Eastern studies major, then decided I wanted to be a spy, almost was one, never was, Mm. and uh, somehow found my way to uh, to Baghdad in 2007. So that's that's a short story. 
I, I have to ask you one thing, just it's a little bit of a digression, um, Sam. I, I watch you on TV. I always tell Rich, I've never seen a person more effective in terms of making their point carefully and strategically. I was in Asia during the tragedy uh, in Pittsburgh, and they brought you on air suddenly, uh, I don't think with very much preparation, uh, and you helped interpret for a grieving audience what was taking place in the synagogue, how to think about it. You, you had a reverence and a respect in the way you handled questions. You helped guide uh, how we should think about it. But to be honest, I did not know at the time very much about your family history. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit, just how did you, how were you able to do that, you know, knowing what your father had experienced, and then to see this example of um, horrible, brutal, vicious anti-Semitism? I was actually live on air when it happened. And so we started getting the news alerts that there was a shooting in Pittsburgh near to a Jewish synagogue, and then found out that it was in the synagogue. And I was able to do that breaking news segment because your adrenaline starts going. And then we finally got a break. And I, I called my dad and I said, Daddy, did you see what happened? And he said, the only thing that we can do in a situation like this is to try to educate. We obviously are mourning the people that died in that massacre, but to use it as a moment to explain to so many people that don't understand what drove the Holocaust, that it wasn't just a snap of fingers and people automatically started hating Jews and helping to bring them to internment camps and forced labor and that sort of thing, but that it was a gradual process. And based upon what happened in Pittsburgh, my father told me, and I did this later in the evening on air, to start trying to explain what it takes to counter that hatred and to start telling people that when they see something that they need to speak up. And there's a poem that I shared on Twitter that basically says, first I came from the, for the Jews yeah. and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew, and then gets to the end and says, and then they came for me and there was no one to speak up. And it, it really is something that I tried to speak about, which is you have to speak up wherever you see hatred, even if it's not against you, because it could get to you and it mm -hmm. spreads so quickly. And unfortunately, this is a security statement, not a political one, we are seeing a massive rise in anti-Semitism around the world, and we're seeing a massive rise in politically divisive rhetoric that we now know after the pipe bombs and the Pittsburgh shooting leads to violence. And I think because of the speed of communications, you mentioned Twitter earlier, Kurt, because of instantaneous communication, hateful rhetoric that may have taken days or weeks to spread in the era of Eichmann and, and Hitler and those kinds of demagogues now literally spreads in a millisecond and things get magnified so quickly that we have to be even faster in calling it out, I think, whether it's on TV or Twitter or just in our communities. Those are really wise uh, words, Sam. I also wonder if your family's experience has shaped your view of the United States' role in the world as well. And as you you know, started this career in foreign policy and worked in the White House, do you just think about the U.S. role a bit differently than others? I do in, in two ways. I mean, the, the whole notion of interventionism and isolationism was really born in and around the Holocaust. And for my family and a lot of other Jewish families, the time that it took for the United States to get involved in a genocide 
was just so late. I mean, 6 million Jews were slaughtered, so many other minorities. And we waited because there was the argument that it did not directly affect U.S. interests. That's an argument that we all heard when we were at the White House for, for various conflicts, where in fact, we were actually proven wrong. I mean, Syria is a good example. We We thought perhaps, or actually inaccurately, that there was not a need to directly intervene in Syria because it may not directly affect U.S. interests. That was wrong because of the spread of, of terrorism. So I think that my whole concept of what is actually a core U.S. national security interest is is impacted by the Holocaust, as is my where I spend my personal time, which is on on child refugee policy. I mean, my my father was a child when the war broke out. And now I look around and I see child refugees in Syria. I see children starving in Yemen. Five million children are at risk of famine. I just got back from Jordan. I was there with UNICEF where you know, 450,000 Syrians have passed through the one refugee camp that I was in. And so I know what a lost generation could look like um, based upon what my father went through. Kids with no school, no health care, no, no future. And we're letting it happen again. The difference is during the Holocaust, people argued they didn't know what was happening. Today, we know what's happening in Myanmar. We know what's happening in Yemen. We know what's happening in Syria or DRC. And we're not doing anything. And this president, and this is a difference from President Obama, is much less interventionist. And I think does not feel that human rights are a core U.S. national security interest. That was quite evident from his statement on the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and other actions that he's taken. Sam, you had a distinguished career at the NSC. What was it like working at the White House? And give us a little gossip about what it was like <laughs> working for our good friend Tom Donnelly. Uh, working <laughs> at the White House and his experience is an experience I miss every day. But gosh, that was just a never-ending barrage of bad news. And it taught me one important skill, and I'll get to the gossip part, which is just prioritization. It's something I went to Goldman after the White House, but there is never ever a dull moment. If you think you finished all your work, there's some other news clipping that Tom Donilon has that he wants you to go research from, from an archaic journal that only he reads. And I mean that in the best way about Tom. There's some other terrorist attack or, I mean, Obama had a strategic project. Climate change was always something when there was any free time that we, that we you know, something that we focused on. So it was no sleep. And even when you thought you could sleep, you were nervous, you were forgetting about something. And, you know, Tom, Tom taught me prioritization. And he also just taught me to speak, to think two steps ahead. I mean, he, his mind always went to and still goes to in the private sector, what's going to be happening, let's say two weeks from now, after we finish a trip to China, we accomplish certain goals, we're realistic, what comes next? And so it was a constant state of uh, dissatisfaction with the status quo and always trying to improve. And in the end, that's a good thing. But it meant, you know, existing on Diet Sprite and those peanut M&Ms they keep outside the safe room yeah, for, four, diet, for four diet years. Diet champions. So yeah, yeah, I, I yeah. see peanut M&Ms now and I kind of cringe a little yeah, bit because so. I have that PTSD from, it, from not I, sleeping. It, it makes me think I'm about to go into a deputies meeting and there might not be a seat for me. So I know. There might, and I, I was I, that gatekeeper I job, I have to tell you, was the worst part know, of my picking up the phone and letting someone know yeah. that they did not make had, it into that was, principal's committee meeting. I was on meeting. the other side of that call a couple of times. And I always had to do it. I don't I know, know why. It wasn't so, fair. But, so 
I've, I've watched you on air and I, I actually listened to you carefully here. And one of the interesting things about you is I can tell that, you know, you're, you're thinking deeply about what, what Trump means, means for the world. But I also can tell that it's causing you to look back on our time in government, the Obama period, and reflecting on what you think worked and what you think maybe we could have done differently. So I don't want to put you on the spot, but as you look back on, on um, our time in government, how would you evaluate it? For, for me, one of the things that I take from the Trump administration is man, they're bold. Sometimes I don't like the direction that they're going in, but they step out. And I like the fact that President Obama was careful and cautious, but I think sometimes we were a little bit too careful and wouldn't take the, you know, kind of the dramatic, confident steps that I think are necessary for leadership. What do you think? I think that I'll start with Trump and then get to President Obama. I think that we tend to confuse boldness with recklessness and short-sightedness. And I think the president is definitely willing to take risks. I think the problem is that there are risks for some kind of short-term gain. So okay, let's look what's happening you know, around the world. The president is threatening our allies to basically cut them off from U.S. markets because he has a very near-term need to make progress on a tariff issue. And so looking at the, it's relatively speaking, the micro and forgetting the macro to me isn't being bold, that's being reckless. On President Obama, I think that he was so strategic and when he didn't, and this is both a good thing and a bad thing, when he didn't take an action, it wasn't because he didn't want to take a risk, it's because he didn't want to take the action. And so on-, on so I, I don't quite understand that. Elaborate if you would. So let me get, I think on Syria- it wasn't that we were inactive, is that the president did not want to be more active. So it wasn't that he didn't want to make a decision. It was that he did not want to take more steps to put up a no-fly zone around Syria or to put ground troops in Syria. So it wasn't that he was kind of dragging his heels because he didn't want to be bold. It was because he was I don't want to say happy with the status quo. So he'd already made an assessment. He was, I see. Yeah. And we went through the process on Syria, and I think Syria will end up being, you know, unfortunately a horrible stain on President Obama's time and our time in, in government, as well as President Trump's, because the situation hasn't ameliorated. Assad has just gained more territory. But I think Obama's willing to take risks. We saw that with the Osama bin Laden raid. We saw that with the Asia rebalancing. Yeah. Um, but the conditions were different. And I think the biggest thing that you have to remember in national security, and it's something that when I speak to young people, I talk about, you have to balance the tactical with the strategic. And I I have yet to see a strategic case made by President Trump that he speaks to. You know, the Indo-Pacific is a region that he's devoted resources to, a strategy to, he even renamed it. But then when I see him not showing up at summits in Asia and sending Vice President Pence, I just wonder what yeah. the actual long game is. Yeah, I'll turn to Rich here, but I, I think part of it is, um, I, I think he's interested in bilateral engagements, bilateral interactions, because in bilateral engagements, mm -hmm. you can extract the quid pro quo. It's very direct. It's the way More China- More transactional. Transactional. The way, it's the way China did diplomacy back in the day, but it's not really the way Asia conducts itself any longer. And I, I also don't think- he really doesn't like these long trips. 
They were brutal. Remember those November, those Asia swings? I don't think he really likes sitting in a meeting with other people talking. And they got they got a little boring. I mean, no, no, I I live for those. Careful, (laughs) Sam. Careful. In fairness, (laughs) Sam, you mentioned uh, a few few issues. I just want to go a bit deeper on, including the the killing of the Washington Post uh, journalist and the U.S. reaction. If anything, the non-reaction in in many ways from the executive branch, and you see now the tension on on Capitol Hill. There was a failure to have the intelligence community brief. There was then a, a vote in the Senate on potentially cutting off assistance to the Saudi effort in in Yemen. Give us your sense of where this is going. Uh, is the Congress likely to force the president's hand here in, in taking a, a stronger position on on the Saudis? Let me start with your first question, because there's there was a circus on the Hill yesterday. And despite what the CIA said, I have a very hard time believing that Gina Haspel, a career so- servant of the CIA, made a decision not to go up to Capitol Hill. In my four years in the White House, the CIA never decided on its own whether to show up at a major briefing for the Senate. That decision was made by the White House. Dennis McDonough often made that decision as chief of staff. That was not a CIA decision. And this idea that the White House is trying to keep information from the Senate was crystallized yesterday. Why wouldn't they send a briefer, even if it wasn't Director Haspel, to try to, in the first instance, share information what to, what happened to Jamal Khashoggi. But second, ask perhaps an even an equally as important question is how is inaction on his murder going to further embolden, embolden or not embolden Mohammed bin Salman? Are we making a murderer by not taking stronger action against the Crown Prince MBS? That is a question that only CIA can answer. Secretary Pompeo and General Mattis are not positioned to answer that. They're no longer making intelligence assessments. And do you guys remember during Benghazi? I was in the West Wing when it happened. I talked to Mike Morell yesterday. He was acting director of the CIA. He went up to went up to brief the intelligence committees even as the intelligence was evolving. So this was this is a mistake by the White House and Congress, which does not agree on much these days, agrees that this was an error and I think has a lot of leverage in this case. They can cut off assistance to Yemen. And they can also hold up the arms sales, or at least parts of the arms sales. We saw this happen under Reagan. The key question for me is how much that will matter if, for example, President Trump embraces literally and figuratively Mohammed bin Salman going forward, because that won't only damage the president's relationship with Congress, that's going to really damage his relationship with other allies. If President Trump continues to make public displays of affection towards the crown prince himself while our other allies don't. That's just another schism between President Trump as an individual and the rest of our allies. Well, this gets back to the question about what does the U.S. stand for? What's our role in the world? And this balance between uh, values and interests. And it seems that the president has decided our commercial interests mm-hmm. greatly outweigh any human rights that, considerations and, and he, at all. I bristle every time. Iran is a fundamental threat to the United States. It's the largest state sponsor of terror. There are so many things that Iran does wrong. But every time the president and now the secretary of state don't want to answer a question, they play the Iran card. The president's statement on Jamal Khashoggi started off by talking about Iran, not Saudi. The briefing yesterday quickly devolved into a discussion on Iran. It's like whatever they use to maneuver out of a tough spot. And that's that's avoiding answering the question. 
Sam, I, I, again, I'm a avid uh, watcher and follower and listener when I drive of CNN. I, I will say it's interesting um, how much of the focus domestically and internationally is through the lens of Trump. Um, and I find myself even thinking in those terms. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Like, are are we, is the way we think about the world uh, now changing because of the nature of our collective relationship with the president and what he stands for? And um, has it distorted our worldview or and our approach in some ways? I think that our worldview collectively is distorted by virtue of the fact, and this is a small thing, but it's something I realized the other day, presidential, presidential interactions with the world used to be limited, more limited, and they used to be rehearsed. Now, this president, this isn't a criticism, it's a fact, has made a decision to communicate with the world multiple times a day without essentially checking with anyone. And so the amount of information we get from the president has so drastically increased because of his Twitter feed. But is that information or is it just kind of uh, rhetoric? Uh, it is, well, it's it's inputs from the president right. is a better word rather right. than information because a lot of it is inaccurate. But because there are so many interventions by the president, it is hard, Kurt, not to every day wake up and just respond to correcting the president's mm. tweets. Yeah. And I see this a lot doing CNN domestic versus CNN international. I mean, the rest of the world, yes, Trump is a major focus, but there's a lot of other stuff going on. Whereas here, as a follower of the news, it's so manipulated by the president's Twitter feed. And I was on with my colleague, Brian Stelter, a few months ago when I first started. And I said, you know, one of the best things that we could do for national security is to unfollow President Trump on Twitter. Because those that's not information. That's misinformation. And we are losing sight of what's actually happening. That's obviously for those of us in the news business, not a not something that we can actually do, but it is a distortion. So, you know, uh CNN uh and almost all shows sort of often use this format of sort of point and counterpoint. I'm just curious. I sometimes watch the folks that that CNN brings on to explain why this Twitter approach or this interaction with the Russians was harmless, you know, kind of the 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 Trump explanation, and it's often labored and difficult, <laughs> and kind of like they fall back on, you know, kind of I wouldn't do it, things like that. But I wonder when you're getting made up or in the green room <laughs> before or after, does it do they ever let on, man, that was difficult, that was hard, or you know, do you remain in your corners uh, even when you're off air? I'd say my colleagues and. On television, that remain Trump supporters are actually most of them, and there aren't that many, are relatively honest about when he screws up, um, and it's normally related to racism and misogyny. That's something that, and I, I don't need to name them right now, but that they they won't take on the North Korea stuff, on foreign policy issues, on China. I think they're true believers, and you know when you look at the trade war that's going through its ups and downs with China, I mean. Trump supporters still point to how his approach has worked in other case studies on the trade front. On North Korea, I think people are really starting to give up. It used to be this talking point, well, there are no more missile tests. Unfortunately, you and I both know all too well what that actually means and what it doesn't mean. That talking point has gotten so stale that you'll notice, 
I can't remember the last time the president tweeted about North Korea. Mm-hmm. And so I can't remember the last time a Trump supporter was on air using that talking point about no more missile tests. So it's all related. But on the economic front, I think they really remain ardently supportive of what he's doing. I want to ask you about this tool that you've been using, which is this uh, president's kind of intelligence briefing, as if you were there in the White House. Each week you write something, I I guess, on Sundays that that you put out, and it's what the intelligence community might be telling the president, probably things he doesn't want to hear, (laughs) but it's it's an incredible laydown of current events, and I really would encourage people to to read it. Cool titles, too. I really like it. It's a labor of love, but it's it's strategic. Say say a word about that. How did that come to you? It came to me because in the first instance, I think that there's a misunderstanding, particularly right now under this president, about what the intel community actually does. The intel community is an input to policy. So I remember when the presidential daily brief, which is a composition of information that the DNI puts together every morning, would come to the White House. It wasn't just on the issues of the day. You would have a strategic article. You'd have a terrorism update. You'd have a humanitarian update. And then, of course, you know, you'd have the typical players, North Korea, China, Russia, what have you, before a major summit you'd have a scene setter of some kind. So I wanted to try to explain what the intel community did. And I also wanted to reset a little bit the issues that we were all focused on because it is so easy to get lost in the president's tweets that I view, we call it the PWB, the Presidential Weekly Briefing. I view the column as a way to flag issues and ideas that people aren't thinking about. So in a recent briefing, I talked about uh, actually WikiLeaks and Julian Assange and what's happening there. In um, another issue, I talked about the state of play in Afghanistan. I mean, Mm. Afghanistan, more service members died in November. We're not talking Mm. about it anymore. Mm. What's going on with the Taliban? What's going on with Al-Qaeda? So these issues that may not be making headlines, but are core national security risks, because that's what the actual PDB would do every day for the president. So, Sam, what is going on with Assange? I, I find that I'm finding this. I'm so interested by this. I, because... I know, but you help us. So, what's going on? Well, here's the interesting thing. I mean, from Trump's perspective, or I should say differently, from Mueller's perspective, he's looking into ostensibly whether there was some kind of conspiracy between WikiLeaks, the Russian government, and the Trump campaign. That's a burning question in a lot of people's minds. There was this failed plea deal a few days ago with Jerome Corsi, a Roger Stone associate. And now we have a situation where Julian Assange has been in the Ecuadorian embassy for years. He's had refuge there. But the new Ecuadorian president seems to be singing a different tune, and it is unclear whether he'll continue allowing Assange to stay in the embassy. At the same time, we found out few weeks ago, and this was a massive error by the Department of Justice, that criminal charges have been filed against Assange under Obama that never happened. So we could see a scenario where the Ecuadorians say, all right, guys, we're done. We don't want Assange anymore. UK agrees to extradite him. And Julian Assange knows who Julian Assange may have coordinated with on the Trump campaign. So all these different factors are coming together, and it could be could be interesting timing. You've written a lot about uh, China, the trade war, and you've written a lot about Putin. And uh, we're likely to see some engagement over the next uh, few days uh, between the president and both leaders of Russia and China. Just give us your sense of where we are on either the trade war 
and on uh, Putin. Is he friend or foe this week? Where where are we? Uh, I'll start with the easy one, which is whether Putin's a friend or foe. He is most definitely a foe. Uh, we saw that with the recent aggression in the Kerch Strait uh, against Ukraine. The problem with Putin is... <laughs> It's kind of like, you know that whole thing you tell kids if you give a mouse a cookie? Yeah. With Putin, if you give a mouse a cookie, he's going to ask for the whole box. And so the incursion he made into Crimea happened. We sanctioned him. And guess what? He's continued his misbehavior in Ukraine. He's harassing military uh, vessels. He's harassing Ukrainians on the ground. He's staging sham elections in the territories that he controls. So my fear with Putin is if the president continues to placate him for whatever reason, Putin's just going to keep getting more and and looking for more. And so, you know, when President Obama saw Putin at the G20 in Los Cabos, I remember standing outside and seeing them go in. It was the most awkward meeting. It was the body language meeting because it was so icy. I wish that was the kind of meeting we were going to have with Putin in uh, in in, in the, the next time there's an encounter because Putin will not stop his misbehavior if the president says, I love this guy, he's my friend. We know that uh, just looking at past history. And quickly on China, it would be foolhardy for the president to think that China has not seen the Juncker model. And by that, I mean uh, Jean-Paul Juncker came to the United States, got a tariff ceasefire. And then guess what? The president has been tweeting in recent days that, all right, that happened. I'm done with it. We're going to reimpose tariffs because the EU is awful. It's the worst thing that's ever happened in the United States. So if you're Xi Jinping and you're negotiating with President Trump, a short-term Band-Aid is pretty transparent. The question is whether there is something that the president is willing to to do to show China that, in the first instance, they have to do something to make him happy, (laughs) and second, that he'll actually stick the maximalist position that the president is taking with China, this all or nothing, give me everything I want and you get nothing, I don't think is going to convince the Chinese that they need to make a strategic shift. And we all worked on this. Remember those trips to Beijing, mm-hmm. Kurt, <laughs> yeah. when we were pre-sunny lands trying to get the Chinese to stop their IP theft and that sort of thing? It didn't work then. And again, in a post EU Juncker era, where we've seen what the president has done with other trade negotiations, I think it's going to be even more difficult. So when you think about the framing issues of American foreign policy going forward, you know, one of the one of the recurring themes of our uh, tea leaves broadcasts are this idea of a really a tectonic shift underway uh, from 20 years of focus in the Middle East and South Asia and more towards the Asia Pacific. Um, do you share that view? Or like, as you think about the, you know, what's going to animate and propel American engagement in the world, do you think it's the rise of China, the the opportunities and uh, challenges of India? Or do you think the United States will, you know, kind of muddle along without a, you know, framing uh, um, overarching set of uh, guideposts? What's your view? I think uh, for the next couple of, of years, we will muddle along because I don't actually see a strategy that we're sticking to in the Asia yeah. Pacific. I see a transactional approach, whether it be with North Korea, whether it be with India, where we have, you know, again, supposedly the strong alliance and then we slap tariffs on that make no sense. I mean, there's I, I just don't get what's really happening there. I don't think we're going to turn away from the Middle East. And I know under Obama, we rebalanced towards Asia. We tried to kind of reallocate resources proportionately. One, because of our strong alliance with Israel, 
and two, because of the of the threat that Iran continues to pose. So I don't see a shifting fully away from the Middle East and allocating more resources to the Asia Pacific unless the direct threat from APAC rises in some way proportionate to that of Iran and terrorism emanating from the from the Middle East. Otherwise, I don't see it happening. Powerful thoughts. Sam, thanks so much for joining us today. What a great conversation. I encourage all of our listeners to tune into CNN to hear more of your excellent commentary. Yeah, Sam, thank you so much. It's uh, been great to to work with you in the administration, but also uh, see you in this capacity as well. Uh, it's, it's really been fabulous. And thank you to all of our listeners. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Sam. Yeah.